We read the Word of God today in Matthew 5 and then Matthew 19. In Matthew 5, we read verses 27 through 32. Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you, that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. And if thy right eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee, for it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish, and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. And if thy right hand offend thee, cut it off and cast it from thee, for it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish, and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. It hath been said, Whosoever shall put away his wife, let him give her a writing of divorcement. But I say unto you, that whosoever shall put away his wife, saving for the cause of fornication, causeth her to commit adultery. And whosoever shall marry her that is divorced, committeth adultery. Now in Matthew 19, the Lord expands more, especially on the matter of marriage and divorce and the permanence of marriage. We're going to read the first 12 verses of Matthew 19. And it came to pass that when Jesus had finished these sayings, he departed from Galilee and came into the coast of Judea beyond Jordan, and great multitudes followed him, and he healed them there. The Pharisees also came unto him, tempting him, and saying unto him, Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause? And he answered and said unto them, Have ye not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female, and said, For this cause shall a man leave father and mother, and shall cleave to his wife, and they twain shall be one flesh? Wherefore they are no more twain, but one flesh. What therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. They say unto him, Why did Moses then command to give a writing of divorcement, and to put her away? He saith unto them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, suffered you to put away your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. And I say unto you, Whosoever shall put away his wife, except it be for fornication, and shall marry another, committeth adultery. And whoso marrieth her which is put away, doth commit adultery. His disciples say unto him, If the case of the man be so with his wife, it is not good to marry. But he said unto them, All men cannot receive this saying, save they to whom it is given. For there are some eunuchs which were so born from their mother's womb, And there are some eunuchs which were made eunuchs of men, and there be eunuchs which have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. He that is able to receive him, let him receive. He that is able to receive it, let him receive it. We read the word of God this far. We take instruction also this morning from the Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 41.
What doth the seventh commandment teach us? That all uncleanness is accursed of God, and that therefore we must with all our hearts detest the same, and live chastely and temperately, whether in holy wedlock or in single life. Doth God forbid in this commandment only adultery and such like gross sins? Since both our body and soul are temples of the Holy Ghost, He commands us to preserve them pure and holy. Therefore, He forbids all unchaste actions, gestures, words, thoughts, desires, and whatever can entice men thereto. Beloved saints in Christ, the lesson that's set before us this morning in the school of the law is one regarding chastity and temperance. You do well to know immediately what those words mean. The word chastity refers to the power or grace of sexual purity. It is that grace that the child of God has, who in us has a new man, and which new man, the life of Christ in us, can fight against the old man, the desires and the inclinations of the old man. And fighting against that old man can keep our bodies and souls pure and holy. Chastity. Temperance is self-control. One who is chaste will seek the grace of God and be given that grace to control his body and his tongue. Thoughts come in our heart before we can prevent them, but the acting on the thoughts is prevented by one who has self-control. And who says, that was a bad thought, an evil thought. I need grace to fight that thought, and I will fight that thought. I will govern my thoughts and my actions and my speech by the law of God. Chastity and temperance. The seventh commandment requires positively the manifesting or living according to chastity and temperance. The commandment, of course, forbids adultery. But in forbidding something, and again in forbidding the extreme example of that thing, it forbids all sexual sin of any form. Answer 109 of the Catechism drives that point home. Is this speaking only of Gross sins. Gross sins are sins that are of the worst possible nature, of the most extreme form. Is that all God forbids? And the answer is no. And so we're going to learn how and why. It is our calling to live chastely and temperately, detesting all sexual uncleanness. As we learn this lesson today, we're again learning a lesson that's very different from what the world would teach. In other words, the word antithetical comes to mind again. Antithetical, directly opposed to, the exact opposite of what the world teaches is that sexual activity is the sort of thing you should freely give yourself over to. It is what defines life. In it is found whatever joy and whatever happiness you will ever have in life, so do it. Of course, what the world forgets, in fact, doesn't even understand, 
is that there is something called fellowship with God. And fellowship with God is the sweetest joy and happiness. Fellowship with God that's not limited now just to this life, but will be even more deeply enjoyed to all eternity in heaven. And because the world doesn't have such an idea or concept of fellowship, true happiness with God now in this life and a greater in the next, she says, this is all we have to live for. Give yourself over to it. Make the most of it. And so, the lesson we learn today is antithetical to the world. But it's also antithetical to our own nature. Because what the world says, our old man of sin hears and responds by saying, must be right. It's what I want, after all. It's what I desire. Therefore, apparently, my desire will only be fulfilled when I give myself what I want. And the Word of God comes to us and says, don't think that way. Understand that there are sinful desires and there are godly desires. Feed the godly. Fight the ungodly. We have today an antithetical lesson that we'll learn only from Christ in the school of the law. And so also with regard to the application of and explanation of this commandment in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, some have said this to you, but I say that. Call your attention to this under the theme taught by Christ in the school of the law, today's lesson, Living Chastely. And temperately, first of all, by detesting all uncleanness. Second, by faithfulness in holy wedlock. And third, as children in Father's kingdom. Every commandment, and so this one also, is broad. And that's the point I really need to drive home in the first point. The broadness, the breadth of this commandment. We're not to commit adultery, says the catechism. That means detest all uncleanness. And notice the alls and the holes, that all uncleanness is accursed of God, and that therefore we must with all our hearts detest the same, and live chastely, etc. The commandment and the Heidelberg Catechism's explanation of it is broad. It forbids, therefore, gross sins, such as adultery and fornication. Again, to clearly define the terms, the word adultery refers specifically to sexual activity by a married person, but outside of the marriage bond. That is forbidden. But fornication does not only refer to sexual activity on the part of one who is not married, fornication is the broad word that encompasses any and all sexual sins. It does include voluntary sexual activity by two who are not married to each other, and therefore for whom the gift of sex is not freely given by God. But it includes also every other sin. You could read, In Leviticus 18 and 20, a list of sins, 
gross sins, extreme actions, and disgusting actions that God says to the Israelites, you may not do these things. If you do these things, you must be put to death. And those also fall under the category of fornication. Fornication, therefore, certainly includes the forcible rape, which does not amount then to a mutual violation of the seventh commandment, but to the violation on the part of one of the seventh commandment. Fornication includes bestiality, homosexuality, and incest. It includes any sexual activity and expression of sexual desires that is not between one man and one woman. Now, we live in a day and age in which the world, back 30 years ago, may be looking a little askance on these sins, now says, they're good too. And so, to the young people and the young adults who grow up in the day and age in which we live, let it be understood that the Lord says of so much of what the world promotes, it's wrong. And that, for instance, the sin of homosexuality is a sin against the seventh commandment of the law. And when our Lord and Savior in Matthew 19 comes back to God creating man, male and female. He is laying there not only the foundation for what marriage ought to be, but also reminding us of the very foundation of how sexual activity within the marriage bond is properly manifest. So there are so many actions that are forbidden by this commandment. But if all that was forbidden was action, then we could become Pharisees. And we could say, I haven't done that, or that, or that, or that, or that, and I have limited my sexual activity to the marriage bond. And we could congratulate ourselves. We need to see, therefore, that the commandment is even broader than referring to all sorts of actions, but it governs the heart. And that's answer 109 of the Catechism. Since both our body and souls are temples of the Holy Ghost, He has commanded us to preserve them pure and holy. That was not just body, you understand, but soul. And therefore, He forbids all unchaste actions, gestures, words, thoughts, desires, and whatever can entice men thereto. Our Lord and Savior underscores the point when in Matthew 5, verse 28, He says, But I say unto you, that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. So it really is not a joking matter, men. When you are at the beach, to say something like, I can look at the menu as long as I don't eat off it. Because to look at the menu is to eat off it. In your heart. It is not a joking matter for a man as he's watching something on TV, especially to pay attention to certain females and commercials or whatever, because he has a deeper desire. And in this way, 
he inflames his lusts. It's not a joking matter for a woman to be interested in reading certain kind of novels because they allow her in her fantasy world to have a relationship with a man which she'll never have in real life, not that man or not that kind of relationship, but she can have it in her own heart. All of this, says our Lord, and the catechism is fornication and adultery. Thoughts. Then there are the gestures, the suggestive winks of the eye or uses of the finger, which indicate that I'm interested in knowing whether you are interested, these two, and whatever can entice men thereto. What this commandment and the Heidelberg Catechism's explanation of it requires us to do is to go home presently and to take inventory of our life and say, what is it? What is it that would trip me up? What is it that if it happened, if I saw, if I read, if I heard, would inflame my desires? And what more must I do to fight against them and to do what I can to get that occasion out of my life. Even then, we haven't finished explaining the breadth of the commandment. For it not only forbids the extreme actions, and it not only forbids the heart that leads up to the action, but it requires positively so much of us And I'm going to refer to other passages of Scripture that make the point clear. They weren't the passages that I read for today, but they underscore that the keeping of this commandment positively is broad. You have, for instance, 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 4, For this is the will of God, even your sanctification, that you should abstain from fornication, and that you should... Know how to preserve your body, your vessel, in sanctification and holiness. There's the word of God in 1 Corinthians 6. Flee fornication. Every sin that a man doeth is without the body, but he that committeth fornication sinneth against his own body. And he goes on to emphasize, ye are bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. And that last word, that last command, means sexually to glorify God in body and in spirit in a right way. There's the word of the Holy Spirit in Hebrews 13, verse 4. Marriage is honorable in all and the bed undefiled. These are some of a number of Scripture passages that show that the positive keeping of the command also is very broad. And it starts with this. My body and my soul is a gift of God to me. The soul that has been renewed, the new man of Christ in me, is a gift of God's grace to me. And therefore, with a renewed soul, and in my body I am to praise and desire fellowship with Jesus Christ my Savior, and therefore I am to preserve my body pure and holy, 
and keep the seventh commandment positively in every instance I can and may. Well, what does the positive keeping of the law require of us? The first place, to hate sexual sin. Not just to recognize that it's sin, but to hate it. Had Joseph, you remember the story of Joseph. Had Joseph loved sexual sin, he would have never said to Potiphar's wife, Oh. Had Joseph desired to commit sexual sin, he would have said to Potiphar's wife, Okay. When one hates it, and hates it for God's sake, then one is on one's guard against it. Then one seeks grace to flee fornication, as the Apostle says also in 1 Corinthians 6, 18. Are the things we watch on television, are the things we watch on our phones and tablets, are the things we're ready to listen to, consistent with our calling to hate and flee. And even, I'd say to the young people, but I could say it as well to an 80-year-old man, because the natures are the same. Even if we do that in private, and no one knows, you think God isn't looking, and you think it doesn't matter, The uh, scriptures also require us not just to hate sexual sins, but to guard our whole life. And that's really the point that Jesus makes in the Sermon on the Mount in verses 29 and 30. He says, if your right hand offend you, pluck it out and cast it from you. Uh, That was your right eye in verse 30, if it's your right hand. And you sometimes say, am I to do that literally? And wouldn't that be maiming myself? Wouldn't there be inherently a sin against the sixth commandment there? All right. Do you understand the point, though? The point is that if there is some danger, some sin to which you are prone, the carrying out and living in which will bring you to hell, then addressing that requires drastic measures. It wasn't Samson who plucked out his own right eye and left eye. But when the Philistines did that to him, you understand, that was God saying to him, you haven't learned yet. You've lived in this sin much of your life, but I'm going to make it so that you never see a woman again. And that is your sanctification. The third place, we must ensure that all of our speech and conversations are wholesome. It's not just a matter of avoiding what's unchaste and unclean. It's a matter of being sure that when we do speak, we are building up a brother and a sister. We are expressing kindness and tenderness toward one another. And that we stand ready to rebuke those who don't. The point will be underscored even more when we come to the ninth commandment with regard to lying. But I'll ask young people, as much as I'll ask men who go to work tomorrow, do you tell those who speak evilly in your presence that you're not interested in hearing? That is part of our calling here. The keeping of the commandment positively requires a young man and a young woman when they come to a marriageable age and find that they do have sexual desires to seek and pray to God to be led to a spouse. 
We live in a day and age in which young people seem, I'm generalizing. I know I'm generalizing, and broad brushes are bad things to paint with. But they seem to put off marriage longer than in a former day. What the Lord's purposes are for that, I don't know. But is it our idea, young people, that we need so much money first? That we need so many earthly things first? The Lord provides a spouse so that we can enjoy sexual activity in a godly way. And we ought not put that off longer for any carnal reason. Now I speak as one who understands if somebody says to me, I desire a spouse and the Lord hasn't given me one yet. That was me for many years. Understand that. Then pray. Keep praying. The positive keeping of the commandment requires those who are single and for whom the Lord has not given a spouse to understand that Satan will constantly, or at least could constantly, tempt. And so one must wake up in the morning and go to God in prayer in the morning saying, I need grace today to fight the sin. And the positive keeping of the commandment requires those who are married to work at their marriage, to grow in friendship with each other, to appreciate, to listen, to understand that when one criticizes or so, that isn't to divide, that isn't to put a, a breach in the marriage and the fellowship. Don't let matters fester. Work together to resolve issues. So much for the first point, detesting uncleanness. That leads me, secondly, to say even more regarding faithfulness and holy wedlock. I make a point of this, not only because the Heidelberg Catechism does, but because Jesus Christ does in the Sermon on the Mount and in Matthew 19. And furthermore, because thou shalt not commit adultery, that most extreme form of sin against the seventh commandment is something committed by married persons when they are not faithful to each other and do not seek the marriage bond. Therefore, let's understand a moment the reasons why God instituted marriage and even more what he thinks of marriage. Jesus brought the disciples and the Pharisees back to this. Do you remember what God did when he brought Eve to Adam? Marriage is a holy institution. Holy means set apart for a special use. That's true in the world even, where God says of a man and a woman, an ungodly unbeliever, you are to be devoted to each other. You are to find in each other what you seek in a spouse and not seek elsewhere. All the more is the marriage of believers a holy institution where God says to a man, I'm going to bring you to a woman. She might be one who five years ago you said you would never marry, but you're going to marry her. Because I have your sanctification in mind, your service to the church in mind, your growth in serving Jehovah God in mind. And therefore, in that relationship, we not only are to be devoted to each other exclusively, 
but to recognize that God gives us a picture of what He's done to us, of how He treats us, and of how He seeks us and our good exclusively. And therefore, the keeping of this commandment requires fidelity, faithfulness. It requires a man who made a marriage vow some years back to remember from time to time what that vow was and to understand that there's nothing that happened to him in his life that re- absolves him or frees him from that vow. It understands a man who is a husband to say, I know, I know sometimes my wife's having a bad day. I know sometimes she takes it out on me, but I must be tender toward her. Try to help her. Build her up. And as Peter says, to do that, I need to understand her. Not just what she likes and doesn't, so that I know whether to get her roses or chocolates for her birthday. But understand her heart. Understand her soul. Understand what makes her tick. Understand in what circumstances she does not feel comfortable. Understand how to guide her. How to lead her aright. It requires a woman to say, Some years ago I made vows, and I made them with this dream in mind that everything would work out well, and that he would never give me any reason to be frustrated with him. And since I've become frustrated with him, I no longer need to keep my vows. But it requires a woman, instead of saying that, to say, but he is the one whose guidance I desire. He is the one whose wisdom and leadership I want, and if I see he's not doing what he ought before the face of God, not being the godly leader he ought, I will encourage him meekly, lovingly in that regard. It requires both husband and wife to realize that God leads us through times in our marriage, a trial, It might not, first of all, be a marriage problem. It might be the death or sickness of a child. Some other trial with regard to some other relationship. When Satan would say, this is a prime time for me to work to wedge them apart. Here's the opportunity. But instead, wife and husband together on their knees in prayer say, Lord, use this to bring us Closer to each other and to thee. All of this is part of faithfulness in holy wedlock. It involves my being patient with my spouse. It involves my speaking well of my spouse to another person instead of venting all my frustrations about my spouse unless I'm doing it to a wise woman, a wise man whom I've gone to to seek help. Then, as Jesus makes clear both in Matthew 5 and Matthew 19, it precludes divorce. There is, he makes clear in both instances, one occasion at which divorce is permissible in the eyes of God, and that is fornication. 
the very transgressing of this commandment on the part of one or another married person, especially now when the transgression is so hurtful and so deep that there cannot be trust built up again, is a time when God says it is not wrong to divorce. Now that's different from what the school of the world tells you and me. You don't like her today? She burned the roast? Well, you don't need a reason to get divorced. Just go get divorced. And then there's something else about the school of the world that's different from what Jesus says. And that is, and once you get divorced, look around for who's next. Because there's another woman, another man somewhere, and you may then marry him or her. And Jesus says, no. Divorce for the cause of fornication. And then, don't remarry. That is, while one's ex-spouse is alive. For whosoever shall marry her that is divorced, committeth adultery. We come back to a principle that set forth in the scriptures that even when the earthly outward living together that's required of marriage people cannot of married people cannot take place can no longer be practiced the lord still says but i've put you together in a bond that is separated and broken only by death. As Jesus makes this point, he appeals to the history of marriage again. He comes back to how it was with Adam and Eve. There are those who would look to the Old Testament law and say the Old Testament law permitted divorce. This was the argument of the Pharisees. Did or is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause? And why did Moses then command to give a writing of divorcement and put her away? By the way, they twist the law. Why did Moses command? No. No. It is true that Moses said, when you have an occasion to divorce your wife, you must give her a writing of divorcement. You must give her a certificate indicating that she is no longer married to a man. There was the command. The command was not to get divorced. But in answer to all these questions, some of which are a twisting of the words of Scripture, Jesus brings us back to what was the purpose of God in instituting marriage? Now, this is what it was. That one man, one woman, understand that through whatever providential circumstances of God he used, he brought them together and cause them to enter into marital union, and says to them, you will serve each other until the day of death. Up until this point in the sermon, I have been making applications and spelling out implications of the prohibition of the seventh commandment, thou shalt not commit Adultery. But it's never helpful for anyone, even a child of God, simply to hear do's, don'ts, and only do's and don'ts. 
We need to understand the reason why God gives this commandment. And yet in the second point, the reason for faithfulness or fidelity in holy wedlock is the faithfulness of God to His church in Jesus Christ. This is both the gospel and it also sets forth a beautiful pattern of our own God. In all of the Ten Commandments, when He says, Thou shalt not, He doesn't mean to say, You're going to have some struggles in life. You're going to have some dangers here. I'm going to warn you against them. So don't do this, don't do that, don't do that. But instead, in all of the Ten Commandments, He says this, I am your God. And you are to live toward others the way I live toward you. Here is the beauty of it. Or is isn't just that God married us in Christ. He did that. That is part of the beauty of it. He married us in Christ. He said on the basis of the shed blood of Christ, you are my people and I am your God. He meant we're going to have a covenant relationship, one that He will not break. But it's not just that He did that. The church He married a sinful, adulterous church to whom God says, but I am faithful to you. You see that time and again in Israel's history. What you see in Israel's history in the Old Testament remains true of the church of Jesus Christ and the temptations we face in the New Testament. Turning aside to other husbands, seeking other gods. Now that often manifests itself for Israel in the form of idolatry. But what in essence was idolatry? I don't mean how was it outwardly manifest. What was the heart sin of idolatry? The heart sin of idolatry was saying, Jehovah does not give me the happiness that I seek from a God. He does not give me the joy I don't get fulfillment from Him. My life is not happy. I'm going to seek another. Is not that at heart the very same occasion or sin that leads one to commit physical and earthly adultery? And then God says to such a church as time and time turned to idols, I'm going to purify you. Oh, there are many. There are many in your midst who aren't truly part of my bride. And I'll destroy them. I'll judge them. But I'm going to purify those who are. And he sanctifies. And he chastens. He speaks his word again and again. And he says, I'm not going to put you away. I won't divorce you. I will be faithful. And you and I see that in the work he did in Jesus Christ. And his spirit's work in our hearts And even today, He has drawn us into fellowship with Him here in His house. As a wife seeks her husband, and He says to us today, I'm going to speak tenderly to you. I'm going to build you up. I'm going to nourish you. I'm going to show you that you I love above all else exclusively and faithfully. And when a husband and a wife in the covenant and church of God hear that, You and I say, that's what my Lord did to me. I want to do that to my spouse. 
Now that we can elaborate on the gospel even further, as we will in the third point, as children in Father's kingdom. Remember the relationship in which we stand to God in Jesus Christ. Not only God's activity toward us, that's part of the gospel as as I've explained, but the relationship in which we stand to Him. And that relationship is this. First of all, we are children of God. We noticed that last week at the end of chapter 5. Be therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. And elsewhere throughout the chapter, Jesus reminds us that we are children. That's to say, not only that we've been adopted in the blood of Christ, but that we've been renewed by the Spirit of Christ. And the life of Jehovah God Himself is in us. We can emulate and follow the pattern because He lives in us. In the second place, relationship in which you stand to God is that we are citizens of God's kingdom. That's why we're in the school of Christ regarding the law. That's why we're not in the school of the world, here to learn the world's views and desires. The law of God, the lessons taught in the school, are not for outsiders. They're for those whom He has translated into the kingdom of His dear Son, taken out of the kingdom of darkness and put into His own. They are those for whom, as the Heidelberg Catechism says it, our bodies and souls are temples of the Holy Ghost. It only amplifies the thought I'm making We're children of God because the Holy Spirit dwells in us. We're citizens of God's kingdom because Jesus Christ has brought us into that kingdom. And then, it isn't just that I have this Holy Spirit in me. He dwells in me. Temples. And here we have an even greater motivation to keep the law of God set forth in the seventh commandment. As the Apostle Paul makes home, drives home to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 6. Everywhere you go, and I go, everything we say, everything we do, it is on display that Christ and the, temp- uh, the Holy Spirit live in us. And now how can you take the body, physical earthly body, in which Jesus Christ lives and go make them members of a harlot joined together with somebody outside the bond of marriage. How can you do that? That'd be like Jesus Christ going to have supper in the devil's house. He doesn't. He won't. He cannot. And when you and I do that, what is not happening is that we're doing mission work too or helping bring the unbeliever in, but instead we're saying, I'm not going to live as a child of my Heavenly Father, as a citizen of His kingdom. I'm going to live like the world. When we understand the relationship in which we stand to God, 
when we understand that that relationship is based on the atoning death of Jesus Christ, so that every sin that may have been exposed to your or my consciousness in the sermon today, the Lord says is forgiven on the basis of His death. When we understand that we have in us that new life to live according to the law of God again, when we understand that, then, number one, we say, I can. Sometimes it seems so hard to fight against this sin, so hard to deal with the innate desires, but I can. Oh, and yet not I, but Christ who lives in me. And we say, I have the pattern to follow, but I also have the motivation. It's so hard to do what we're supposed to do when there's no motivation or incentive to do it. Sometimes when we're children, the only incentive to do what we're supposed to do is that we'll get disciplined if we don't. It will hurt if we don't, so we'd better get on with it. And now our Lord gives us far, far greater and deeper motivation. We're able to keep this law, to begin with a true beginning, but we have a motivation, and the motivation is on the one hand, gratitude to God for all that He has done. And furthermore, the motivation is, it's in this way that we enjoy true happiness. True happiness, true Christian joy and blessedness is not, never was, a matter of me eating what I wanted, getting what I wanted, having everything I desired, and therefore even having all the sexual experiences I might desire, my old man might desire. That never was the definition of true happiness or the way to attain it. But it always was this. It always was this. Seek God. Live with Him. Grow in your relationship with Him. Keep His law. Read Psalm 119. The psalmist said, I found true happiness then. And understand child of God, that the peace and the blessing and the happiness that comes in the way of the keeping of God's law is lasting. It's a sort that we'll enjoy to all eternity in heaven. Deeper and deeper will be our joy and happiness. With the power, with the example with the motivation, with the promise of blessing, God give all of us grace, not only to keep ourselves from the most extreme forms of sin, but to live chastely and temperately. Amen. Heavenly Father, because we stand before thy word, and it exposes our sin in us the way a magnifying glass makes a little thing look big. Because we see our sin more deeply, we pray that Thou wilt forgive, empower, 
work gratitude in us. Give us to follow the example that Christ himself and thou dost set. An example of faithfulness always until in death we're brought to live with thee and made perfect for Jesus' sake.